Well, good morning, church family. It is a joy to be together in the Lord's house today. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you will, and open to the book of 2 Thessalonians. As we continue in our study, we are down to the next to the last study in this marvelous little book. Before we dig into the Word, let's go to the Lord in a moment of prayer. Father, we are so grateful as we look back on this last week and we've had opportunity to pause for a little bit to take some extra time to recall the many, many blessings you have poured out upon us. And now, not least, we, we are thankful this morning simply for the body of Christ, the blessing of gathering together, together to come and to worship you, to honor you, to focus our attention upon you, to offer our praises to you to hear from you through your word. The opportunity as well to be with brothers and sisters, to encourage one another, to love on one another, to, as Hebrews calls us, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Father, thank you for this time. We do ask your grace and blessing on those in our church family who are struggling and suffering. And I think particularly this morning of the family of Chuck Bowman, and Trish Plyler, as Chuck went home to be with you this week, we are so grateful that we know he is there with you. The Father, he leaves a hole in our hearts. We ask for comfort for family, and that you would even be honored through his homegoing, through his death, that uh, praise and honor and glory would go to you. Well, Father, as we come to your word this morning, may we have attentive minds and receptive hearts to that which you have for us here. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just came off the Thanksgiving holiday. Of course, most of us know, I'm sure, that our holiday celebration, our Thanksgiving celebration, has its roots in our, in our history as a nation, going back to the time of the pilgrims and the Indians who gathered together on that fall of 1621, for the purpose of giving thanks to God, to give thanks to Him for that very first harvest that they celebrated and enjoyed in, the, in this new world because it was a bountiful harvest. And the year had been a difficult year. The winter before had caused much suffering as they had little food and and extreme cold, and there was much suffering and much death, much loss of life. And so now, as this first harvest came and they they had plenty, there was much reason to be joyful and much reason for them to come together and to thank God. There had been other attempts to plant colonies here in this land that had failed. In fact, it was just only 13 years before the pilgrims, that the very first colony that was successful, an first English colony, I should say, that was a permanent and successful colony, was founded in Jamestown. Jamestown in May of 1607. 
However, Jamestown itself was almost another failed attempt to establish a colony. Just eight months after the first uh, settlers arrived at Jamestown, just eight months later, another ship arrived in January of uh, 1608, bringing more settlers. But as they arrived, they learned that two-thirds of the original settlers had already died. And in those few winter months as they arrived in January, due to the extreme cold, half of those new settlers died. The settlement was in near collapse in the fall of 1608 when the settlers there elected Captain John Smith to be their new head of the colony. And many historians credit John Smith with the survival of Jamestown. As he took charge, he immediately instituted some new and yet very common sense regulations that changed life in Jamestown. One of the most famous of those was how he dealt with folks who were were lazy and were freeloading off of the work and the goodwill of the other uh, the other colonists there in Jamestown. And he declared very famously, he who will not work shall not eat. Well, the problem of idle people, of lazy people, was not a new thing that was invented at Jamestown. It's been around as long as people have been around. And the solution that John Smith instituted for that was not a new solution either. In fact, he simply copied a page out of Scripture. And it's a page out of the Scripture that is before us this morning here in Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We're picking it up this morning in verse 6. Follow along as I begin to read. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm just going to stop right there. As we look at the text, you might be interested if you are a military person or a veteran that the apostle is using here some military terminology. We understand that word command. That's a military term. It's the word that's used by a military commander who is issuing an order to his troops. What's unique here is the orders aren't just the whims of a lowly lieutenant or even a captain. These are orders that are coming down from HQ. From the very top of the chain of command, this is coming. We know this because, as it were, Captain Paul says, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's about to say, he doesn't want them to miss because this isn't just him talking. These are the very words that are coming from Jesus Christ to these people and they need to listen up. It's from the top of command. Don't ignore this. The first command, and by the way, in this text this morning before us, we're going to see that the apostle gives two commands. Two commands here to folks here in Thessalonica because he had given a command before that they have ignored. 
Command number one is to the whole church. And again, we go back to verse six. I stopped before we got through the verse. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness not and not in accord with the tradition that you have received from us. Again, this first command is to the whole church. And what he says is, keep away from idle people. Keep away from idle people. Three things to note here just in this verse about these idle folks. And by the way, the word idle there is not I-D-O-L. He's not talking about folks who spent some time on TV on American Idol. He's not talking about little idols that people fall down and worship. It's not I-D-O-L, it's I-D-L-E, which means people who are Inactive, people who aren't doing something. In this case, people who aren't working, people who aren't being productive. And the first thing he says here is, depending on, by the way, your translation that you're reading from, I read, keep away from folks who are walking in idleness. But you may be reading in your translation, it may say, keep away from people who are living unruly lives or people who are disorderly. See, if you're reading the King James, if you're reading, I think, the New American Standard, if you're reading some of the especially older translations, they use the word disorderly or unruly. That's actually a more accurate translation of this word. It means, and again, it's fitting in here with these military terms. It's a military term. It's someone who is not following orders. So the disorderly is someone who is unruly because they won't follow the rules. In military terms, they are insubordinate. There's insubordination going on here. Now, it's translated in our new, in many newer ones like the ESV, the NIV, other translations. It's translated here as idleness because that is the problem. That is the issue here that Paul is addressing, and that becomes crystal clear as we'll work our way through the text this morning. But I don't think the translators just gave us the credit that we can figure that out. And I think they should have translated it as the way it really is. It's disorderly or unruly. But regardless, we're using the ESV, and we'll just use that word because it's really what the focus is. They are idle. They are living in idleness. They're not working. And we wonder, why aren't they working? And the text doesn't tell us. And so theologians like to speculate, as they always do. They speculate. And one speculation is that the problem is, the reason they're not working is exactly tied into the problem earlier we saw in the book where there were these false teachers, these folks who had come in said, we've got a message from God and the day of the Lord is here. We are in this time of tribulation uh, before the coming of, second coming of Jesus Christ. And so some of these folks, they're speculating, are saying, hey, if we're in the day of the Lord, if we're in this time of tribulation, the return of Christ is near, then you know what? Let's just stop working. Why work if Jesus Christ is coming back in the next weeks or months or years, couple of years, you know, we can, let's just sit back and wait. Maybe that's the problem. Or it could be that these folks are just simply, they've been Romanized. These are folks who are living in Roman culture, and Roman culture doesn't hold work in very high regard. That's for lowly people. 
You know that over half of the Roman Empire, the population, over half of them were slaves. And those who weren't slaves were the slave owners, and they didn't think work was very, you know, civilized. It's not dignified. That's what slaves are for. So you had slaves to do your work so you could sit back and pop grapes in your mouth and recline on your couch and take life easy. And so maybe that's what it is. Some of these folks who come into the church have come from this, they've, they've imbibed the culture, and they are sitting around doing nothing. Maybe that's the problem. Or maybe they've just caught that disease that a lot of people have, and they're just plain lazy. And so they're sitting around doing the first century version of sitting on somebody else's couch, eating somebody else's food, playing video games all day, whatever video games they had in the first century. Maybe it's, who knows, it's any of those. The second thing I noticed, not only is the problem idleness, it also involves, you notice he says, brothers, stay away from a brother who is walking in idleness. He's talking about a believer, someone who names the name of Christ, somebody who is identified with and connected to and a part of the church. You've got a Christian who's lazy and unproductive. It may be brand new concept to you, but sometimes Christians do wrong things. Who knew? There can be a Christian in the church who's sinning and doing something really wrong. It's happening here. Thirdly, notice it says that they are walking in idleness. Walking, you know, is a euphemism in Scripture for living. They're living in idleness. This isn't a one-time failure, a one-time you know, misstep into irresponsibility. This is a pattern of life. This is a, a way of life with them. They are living as unproductive, lazy people. This idleness is no minor sin. And we know that because the Apostle Paul is telling the church here, telling the people in the church, stay away from somebody like this. Yes, they're a brother in Christ, but stay away from them. It's a command. And that command, probably, when you think about it, maybe raise some questions in our mind. That sounds kind of harsh. Sounds like shunning. It sounds like, you know, so how are we supposed to apply that in the church? What does it mean to stay away from them? And what's the purpose of this? Those are all great questions, but we're going to skip all that today. You come back to it next week because it comes up again in verses 14 and 15. We'll look at next week and we'll do that next week because Pastor Aaron's preaching that week. And you guys know that I love to give the hard questions to Pastor Aaron. So I'm just going to skip by that today. Today, I want to focus our attention here in this passage as we deal with idleness. I want to focus in the, with this first command on four principles about idleness we see in this first section, this first command. Again, back to verse 6. Keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. 
Now, if you've been with us in this series, if you were here a few weeks ago, back in chapter 2, we ran across this term traditions before. And traditions there is not referring to traditions like we decorate for Christmas and we put up green things and lots of little lights. It's not tradition that we... It's not talking about traditions like we eat turkey on Thanksgiving. He's not even talking about church traditions that have been invented by people. But rather, the word traditions means handed down or passed down. And he's referring to things that they, the apostles, he and the other apostles, received from Jesus Christ, which they are then passing on to the church. And at that time, they're passing it on through their teaching. As even now the Word of God is being written, as Paul is writing this letter, for instance, which has become part of the written Word of God, it is the written Word, the written traditions, that is the passed down teaching that came from Jesus. And so in other words, when he says that these folks who are living in idleness, they are not in accord, they're not in alignment, they're out of line, they're out of step, they're unruly, they are insubordinate to the Word of God. So idleness is contrary to God's Word. Work is a biblical virtue. When we go back in the Scripture to the beginning, back Genesis chapter 1, we discover there, Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And He creates man, male and female, in His image. But you recall there He says, be fruitful Multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. God gives commands to man. That word fruitful really means be productive. Now part of that is involved in the next things. Multiply, fill the earth, have babies. But when he says fill the earth and subdue it, that word subdue is to to harness the earth. To be fruitful is to be productive, harnessing the, the natural resources that God has provided us here in this world to build, to create, to beautify, to enrich, to use the intellect God has given, the gifts He has given to make wonderful things. God, the, the creator, God, the, the worker, the master worker, the master creator, created man in His image to be a worker and a creator and to be fruitful. We get on to chapter 2 and, and again, God talking about how He made man and He put man in the Garden of Eden and And he says he put him there to work it, to tend it, to care for it. God instituted work for man. We don't have time to go through more of Scripture. But man was created in God's image for the purpose of work. We enjoy sleep. We enjoy rest. We enjoy recreation. Those are all good things. As a matter of fact, they're even at times necessary things. But from the beginning, God made us for more than that. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God made us for a purpose, for you and I to be busy doing good works. And He created us individually, uniquely to do works that He created for us to do individually and uniquely before we were ever born. In a nutshell, God created us to be productive. And so even if our needs are met, 
Even if you no longer have to work for a paycheck because you've got lots of money in the bank, you're, you know, you're independently wealthy, you're retired, you've got a pension, whatever, you don't have to go to a job to get a paycheck to pay the bills. We're still not to be lazy, but to honor God and to serve others through being productive through productive activity. These realities from Scripture, we could go through and do more if we wanted to just do a whole message on God's purpose for us in work. But these realities are why, from the beginning of Christianity, work has been valued. Work has been considered a holy calling. Because any work, all work, can be service to God, and worship of God. The Apostle Paul makes that clear to slaves. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, Paul says this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever work you have to do, do it like you're working for God rather than working for your Master. Knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When we do whatever work we do for the Lord, we are serving the Lord. Whether we're doing that for a paycheck or whether we're doing that to help someone in need or whether we're just doing our chores, the attitude we have can transform work into a holy calling. Work is a biblical value. And idleness, laziness is contrary to God's Word. So the Apostle Paul says here, again, these folks are out of line, they're out of step, they're unruly when they are being idle. Secondly, verses 7 through 9, For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were among you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul says, dear Thessalonian brothers and sisters, when we were there with you, you might remember that while we were there, we weren't idle. We weren't lazy. We weren't inactive. We weren't unproductive. Instead, he said there, he said we worked hard. We toiled and labored. That is hard work. Literally, He's saying, with pain. Not only that, he said, we work night and day. We put in long hours. By day, they preached, they taught, they evangelized, they trained, they equipped, they counseled. And then by night, working by lamplight, they worked to earn money to pay bills. The Apostle Paul, we learned from Acts chapter 18, was a, was a tent maker. He had, he had been trained and skilled at making tents. And we find as we go through and we look at everywhere Paul went when he ministered, he would work and labor and he would sew tents, make tents to sell, to have the money to pay for lodging, to pay for food. All that so they didn't have to put a strain on others. 
He says we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Doesn't mean, by the way, that when he was there with the folks in Thessalonica, that if, uh, you know, Bob and Mary asked Paul and Silas and Timothy over to their house, and they went over to their house after church for Sunday dinner, and there they served them dinner when they got up to leave. The Apostle Paul dug into his pockets and pulled out some money and put it on the table. That's not what he's saying when he says we didn't eat anybody's bread without paying for it. Nor does it mean when he decided, you know, he wanted to meet with some guys for breakfast or, or uh, in the morning before he went out to preach on the, on the street corner or wherever he was going to preach that they, you know, met at the Starbucks of the day and that he always made sure he got the bill and paid for it. I'm not saying that, that nobody else was ever generous and he never took, you know, never received generosity from others. What he is saying is that they didn't live off the labors of the Thessalonians. We didn't count on you guys to pay our bills. We didn't ask you for money. We didn't ask for anything. We didn't demand anything. Although he could have. As preachers of the gospel, they had the right to be compensated. As First Timothy says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those work whose, whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, and it goes back and quotes from the Old Testament law, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading the grain. Paul quotes this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And the point is, he says, it's not that God is so concerned about oxen, though he is. He says, if you got an ox who's treading out the grain, you let the ox eat some of the grain so the ox has energy to do its work. He says, there's a principle there for those who labor for the Lord. He also says, he quotes again from the Old Testament, he says, the workman is worthy of his wages. Jesus quotes that same passage in Luke chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 10 as he's sending the disciples out to go and minister and preach. And he says, when you get to a place and somebody takes, welcomes you into their house and offers you a place to stay and food to eat, he says, you receive that and you accept it because the workman is worthy of his wages. So Paul says, and the passage here in Timothy says, that it's okay, and as a matter of fact, it's acceptable, it's good for those who are preachers of the word to be paid and to receive compensation for their hard work. But Paul says, while we had that right, verse 9, we set it aside. Look at it. He says, it's not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul says, we set aside our rights to compensation and we instead stayed up late and we worked hard. We toiled and labored with with pain so that we could pay our bills so you didn't have to because in the process we were doing something with a higher purpose and that purpose was to be an example. What we wanted you to see, because you see, they'd never seen Christians before. They'd never seen followers of Jesus. And what we wanted you to know is that followers of Jesus aren't lazy. Followers of Jesus are hard workers. And followers of Jesus aren't in it for the money. Followers of Jesus aren't going around demanding from you. That's the example. And the purpose of the example is not just so they can see that, but the hope is that these Thessalonian believers will follow that example. And that they themselves will be hard workers, industrious people, productive people, who aren't lazy. Because the fact is that if someone is lazy, it's a bad taste in the mouth to a watching world. 
And it's a bad testimony for Christ. Let's face it. Who wants to work with lazy people? Nobody wants lazy co-workers. When you're in school and you're, you're given an assignment, you, you, they make a team and they put you on a team with, you know, three or four or five other students and they say, you guys gotta do this assignment. Who wants to be on, with, stuck with a bunch of other lazy students? No. It's a bad thing. And everybody knows it's bad when it's somebody else. And so he says it's a bad testimony for the, for the sake of Christ and for, for the gospel when Christians are lazy, especially if they won't provide for their own family. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 8 says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. In other words, even unbelievers, even Joe Pagan out there knows that you should provide for your family, whether it's as a parent for your children or whether it's as an adult for your aging uh, elderly parents. You take care of them. The pagans know that. And if Christians don't do that, Paul says they're worse than an unbeliever. And heaven forbid that the church be full of lazy people. So the outside world goes, wow, if that's what being Christian, being a Christian is, I don't want any part of that. Think of David Brainerd one of the first missionaries to the indigenous Americans who when he went to preach to some some Indians about Jesus Christ, they had seen a lot of the other colonists and they said, you know, we've seen what you Christians are like. (laughs) You know what? We Indians are better. They'd seen the moral corruption of so many of these folks who named the name of Christ but weren't really believers at all. And they said, if that's what being a Christian is, we won't, we don't want to go there. How sad. But it happens in our day. And Paul here is concerned about this issue of work and idleness and laziness and he says, don't let that be you, church. Idleness is a bad testimony. By the way, I just say, just add to this. Even as Paul aimed to be a good example to the Thessalonians, in every aspect, including this aspect of work ethic, he was looking to get that response out of the Thessalonians that they would seek to be good examples and a good testimony to others. And so it comes down to you and me. That should be our aspiration and our goal, to be a good example. We hopefully will be So good an example we can say to people, even as Paul does, look at us. The problem with these these folks who are idle is not only are they not in line with God's Word, they're not in line with our example. And our example was a good model of what a Christ follower should be. And I wonder, can you say that? Can I say that? That my life is a good model of what a follower of Christ should be? And if we can't say that, why not? Paul is laying the challenge out here, you see, indirectly as he's calling their attention to their example. He's saying that ought to be our aspiration. In your work, in your love, in your priorities, in your integrity, in your generosity, in your patience, In the words that come out of your mouth, are you an example of what a Christ follower should be? Can you say to your 
Children, follow my example. Can you say to your Sunday school class, follow my example? To your neighbors, to your friends, follow my example because I'm following Jesus. None of us will ever be perfect. But by God's grace, we ought to be those who set it such an example as that. Back to the real point here as he's dealing with these idle folks. There's a third thing here to learn, to note about these idle people. That is verse 10. It says, For when we were with you, we would give you this command. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. There's the line that John Smith stole at Jamestown. Well, the point is don't enable a lazy person. The Bible calls us as Christ followers to be compassionate people, to have compassion on the poor. The Bible calls for us as believers to be generous, to share with those who are in need. So we are to be generous and we are to be compassionate. But that has led some well-meaning folks today to say, you know what, we should never refuse anything to anyone who asks, especially not refuse to give them food. Now, Jesus did say, by the way, give to him who asks of you. Give and don't hold back. The, the point was, he was in context, he was talking about those who are being stingy and those who won't give. But the Bible in other places, including here, says there are to be limits. There are times when people ask and we should say no, even to food. It is appropriate. Matter of fact, it is the loving thing to do. There is a time to deny help, even deny giving food. And that's a shocker to a lot of folks. Why? Because giving support to someone who is not willing to work is not really helping them. It's enabling them to continue to live irresponsibly, to continue to live in idleness, in laziness, and ultimately that is self-destructive. In the same way, it is not a loving thing for a doctor to know you have cancer and just put his arm around you and say, hey buddy, you're doing great. A doctor who knows you have cancer better tell you, you have cancer and you need help. So it is if someone is living here in sin, especially a believer in Christ, is living in sin, they're lazy, they're unproductive. He says, if they're not willing to work, if they are able to work, then they shouldn't be eating food provided by others. Such a person is not to be supported by the church. Why? Because hunger can be a great motivator to change. A family member of mine who will remain unnamed says their little dog will not eat its dog food. And so they feed them chicken and hamburger and whatever else they fix. Sometimes they'll fix special stuff for this little dog. The dog, I think, eats better than I do. When they're out of town and I keep that dog that they swear won't eat dog food. You know what that dog eats? Dog food. Because after, you know, a day or two when it doesn't get chicken or hamburger or whatever, it goes, hmm, I guess I'll eat dog food. 
So it is. Hunger is a good motivator. And that's the point of this. The point isn't to punish this person, it's to get a change of behavior, to correct a a sin, a wrong behavior. Notice there's a qualification here, though, an important qualification. It says, go back and read it again, says, we would give you this command if anyone is not willing to work. There's the qualification, not willing to work. You see, there are people who are willing to work, but are unable to work. People who may have a disability or an injury or a sickness or they're elderly or whatever. There are legitimate reasons why people, some people cannot work, but they are willing to. Such dear people should be supported. Such dear people should be cared for because human life is valuable and they are valuable and they are precious. But the one who is unwilling to work, he says, Cut off the food supply. That is not socially acceptable in our world today. But it explains, I think, why there's growing laziness in our culture. We would do well to rediscover what John Smith discovered at times. Again, there are people very worthy and very needful of help. And some folks who are lazy may need a a little nudge, may need some assistance to learn to become self-sufficient. But one more thing to notice here about these idle people. Verse 11, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Hmm. That's a great little play on words. They are not busy at work, but they're busybodies. That's not only in this English translation, it's also in the Greek. It's deliberately there to get you to laugh a little bit because it gets you to laugh at yourself <laughs> sometimes. They won't work. But oh, they've got time on their hands to uh, interfere with and to meddle and to aggravate with the people who are trying to work. The people who are trying to be productive can't get anything done because this unproductive, lazy person is over here, you know, criticizing, looking. I remember a sign in a in a mechanic shop that said, you know, labor rate $20 an hour. Labor rate, if you watch, $25 an hour. <laughs> People who don't work but just watch sometimes get in the way. They interfere. Not only that, it's not really here in the text, but people who aren't productive, who aren't busy, also have all kinds of time on their hands to get themselves into other trouble, to get into other sins like gossip and slander and and uh, critic, being critical. That's, we don't have time to go there. First Timothy chapter 6, it's written to Timothy talking about widows and how they need to care for widows who are widows indeed and widows in need. He says, but some of these younger ones who are able-bodied, they've got strength and they've got time. He says, don't put them on the list to get support because if they've got strength and time but don't have to work, there's going to be a big temptation for them to fall into these sins of gossip and slander and become busy bodies. He uses that same expression. 
So, idle people cause other problems. There's that fourth point. People who are unproductive can cause other problems. Well, there's a second command in this text. The first command was to the whole church. The second command is in verse 12. And it's not to the whole church. It's to those folks who are the ones who are idle. It's to those folks who aren't working. It's to those folks who are unproductive. Verse 12. Now to such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. What's the command? Are you one of the idle ones? Get busy. There's the command. In the verse before, verse 11, the apostle told him, Now, even when we were with you, we gave you this command. If someone doesn't work, they shouldn't eat. So Paul had taught them all about these things when they were there for that brief period of time in Thessalonica. He had taught them about the biblical work ethic. He had taught them about the importance of work and the and you go to the Proverbs, which talks about the lazy man and the slothful man. And he had taught them these things. And so he had taught them then. Then he wrote a few months before this letter, he had written another letter, the first letter to this little church in Thessalonica. And when he wrote that letter, he said some things like this. First Thessalonians chapter four, he said, but we urge you, brothers, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Remember what we taught you while we were there. Now he's reminding these folks because apparently he's already heard there's a problem with some folks who are slacking off. And so he sends a little friendly reminder. Now, hey, we urge you, brothers, to work with your hands like we instructed you. And then the next chapter, chapter five of that first letter, he says, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Admonish those folks who are sitting around doing nothing. That word admonish means warn them. And so there he told the whole church, hey, if there's folks over there who are being lazy, and there are, warn them. Now in the second letter, apparently nobody's done anything. The lazy people haven't changed their laziness and the church hasn't confronted them on that. And so now Paul is... Apparently, as you read this, you realize he's kind of getting firm. He's putting his foot down. All right, guys. We taught you when we were there. We warned you in the last letter. And now here it comes. This is your final warning. That's the implication here. Now, to such persons, we command you and you, we encourage you. He's saying, guys, it's time to make some changes. It's time to take some action. So here's your final warning. What's it going to take to get you moving? Does it take a kick in the pants? Okay, I'm commanding you, get busy. Okay. Maybe that's not you. Maybe you don't need a command. Maybe what you need is some encouragement. Okay, guys, you can do this. He says, we command and encourage. I think he's getting both sides of the coin. His point is, whatever you need, I'm trying to give it to you right now. Just get something done. We urge you, brothers. He says, we command you and encourage you in the Lord Jesus. What that tells me is, he says, this is your spiritual duty. If you're a believer in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it's not an optional thing. This is your duty. Be productive. 
If you don't need the paycheck, that's fine. You don't have to earn a paycheck, but be productive. Don't sit around doing nothing. And if you are living off other people, stop it. We'll get there in a minute. Let's keep going. He says, do it in the Lord Jesus. And he says, do your work. What he's saying is, no more excuses. Get moving. Start today. Find a place to start and start and don't quit. It may take a while to get the job you really need to fully support you, but get started now. Do your work. He says, do their work quietly. A lot of debate over what that exactly means. What does he mean, work quietly? Well, I have a feeling it probably ties back to their propensity, as he said, to be busybodies, to go in and and disturb other people who are trying to work. He says, stop interfering with other people. Mind your own business, as he says back in 1 Thessalonians. Mind your own business and work with your hands. Or perhaps it's just that it's not that they're interfering with other people so much, but they're just talking all the time. You know what? Most work is best done without talking. Some things, I guess being a telemarketer, you have to talk while you work. Maybe being a salesperson. But most work is best done without talking. And the more we talk, the less we work. Have you noticed that at your workplace? There's lots of talking at work and often not a lot of work getting done. Work quietly, he says. Probably my take on this, my favorite take on this, isn't probably what it means, but it's my favorite take on it. And that is, don't make yourself a martyr. You know those people who, okay, you're finally making them get a job. (laughs) I'm going to work today at nine o'clock and I got to work eight hours. You know, as you went to work at six and you're working 12 hours, he says, don't be a martyr about it. Work quietly because believe it or not, work is normal. That's my take on what he means, but it's probably not what he means, but I like that one best. Lastly, he says about this, earn your own living. Carry your own load. Literally, it says, eat your own bread. Expecting other people to take care of you when you are able to provide for yourself is selfish and unloving. Carry your part of the load. Well, there's the text. This passage is calling for all of us as believers in Christ to be productive to be workers, to work, first of all, so that your needs are met, so you aren't a drain on others. Are you a worker or a shirker? (laughs) To work, secondly, because not only to work to meet your own needs, but as it says over in Ephesians chapter 4, it says, rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with others in need. Work to meet your own needs. And then above that, work to have something to give to help others. And thirdly, let's be workers to work to be productive in any way we can and as much as we can for the purpose of honoring God and serving Him in our labors. Let me just end with this. With all this talk about work and earning a living, That's all good and it's all true. Let us always remember that there is one thing 
that can never be earned. And that is salvation. Salvation is not by works. It can only be received through God's grace by faith, by trusting in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the gift of eternal life in Christ. And in response to that, the very least we can do is take the moments and the days, the time that we have, and honor You in it in every way that we can, and that includes in our work. Father, may not one person listening to this this morning be a person who is lazy and unproductive. Rather, might we abound in good works. May we be those who accomplish those purposes You created for us to do even before we were born because we're just busy doing whatever is before us, whatever opportunities we have. We're busy working to serve You. And that way, may You be glorified. And may we be a good testimony to a world who needs to know of You. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.